Imagine a better world we can all work towards. What if all children can look forward to a bright future full of opportunities? What role can you, me and our organizations play in realizing this vision? If you can close your eyes and imagine what it would look like, then we can build it. Hi, I'm Altaf Makhiawala and welcome to the second What If podcast from the IKEA Foundation. You just heard Rachel Kite, the Chief Executive Officer of Sustainable Energy for All. She's also the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Sustainable Energy for All and the co-chair of UN Energy. In other words, she's the UN point person for the global goal on sustainable energy. She's also a professor of practice in sustainable development at Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Rachel is a lifelong climate activist and now at the forefront of making the energy transition a reality for all of us. What would such a world look like actually? Rachel kicks off this podcast with her vision on a world that has fully embraced renewable energy. It will be amazing. You'll be able to get to work cheaply, cleanly without, you know, having to wear a mask, without worrying about what the diesel is doing to your lungs and your kids' lungs. You'll be able to drop your kid off at school without having to worry about the cars idling or the you know, trucks going past. I mean, it's going to make city living completely different. You're going to be living in in um, buildings and apartments which um, breathe, are breathing differently and, and putting energy back into the grid. It will mean a transition for people around the globe too, says Rachel. Um, there will be nurses in Africa able to practice in their hometowns because those hometowns are electrified, which means that there are clinics, which means that the clinics are working and the operating theatres are working and the autoclaves are working and that they can be proud in their profession because they can actually make a difference and help save a life and they don't have to be ashamed of coming to work and not having the tools to be able to do their job. So I, I can give you countless uh, examples of how it's going to be fantastic. But I think the most important thing is what you said, which is if you can close your eyes and imagine what it would look like, then we can build it. But this is not where we are now. Not at all. So what keeps Rachel awake at night about the reality of where we are right now when it comes to trying to tackle climate change? I think in the last few months, what's kept me awake at night is the devastation of understanding the science and you know what the what the IPCC report that came out in October last year that talked about what it would take to get to 1.5 degrees and what it would mean for us if we didn't and the difference between 2 degrees and 1.5 which is truly devastating um and, you know and there's the mother of two children what keeps me awake at night is that that that, that isn't everybody's burning bridge I started reading and writing about climate a few years ago, not as an environmentalist, not as an advocate, but just as a journalist who had an interest in the near future. And all of the news from research, from science I was seeing was much, much scarier than the stories that I was reading about in my I, I don't know how one answers the question of what did you do when you knew? Mm -hmm. And we all know 
And in fact, this latest book, an uh, extraordinary book by um, David Wallace Wells called The Uninhabitable Earth, and in that book there is a devastating passage where he says that you know, most of the damage we have done has been since we knew what the problem was. Sea level rise, but it's about agriculture and public health. It affects economic productivity. It even affects... The so since 1992 and the Rio Earth Summit, you know, we've done most of the damage to the atmosphere. And I really started my career in sustainable development in 1990 in the run-up to the 1992 Earth Summit. I worked on the 1992 Earth Summit as a young person and uh, it's really made me sit back and think very deeply about what my career has been about, what it all adds up to um, and that's another reason why I take my hat off to the young people because I think they're right. My name is Greta Thunberg. I'm 16 years old. I come from Sweden and I want you to panic. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. What I hear young people saying is that we want truth. You're our governments. Tell us the truth. If you tell us the truth, it will set you free, but it will set us free to work together to solve this. And I think that Frankly, that message is also echoed when I'm sitting in rooms with CEOs and chairmen of, of companies, mainly chairmen of companies, um, who know that we've misjudged the communication around climate change. There is an energy transition underway. It's going to be difficult, but it is possible. But it requires urgent action now, and it requires all of us. And we're not going to get that unity of purpose by, you know, more, more of the same. It's not business as usual. This is business as unusual. It's young people inspired by Greta who are making a big difference in injecting a real sense of urgency into the debate. Well, so I, I think that the, the school kids coming out onto the streets every Friday for the last few months has shifted the whole debate on its axis. And... You know, all I want to say to them is thank you, because what they've done is shifted us from this sort of urgency narrative to emergency. And I think it's a really, I mean, apart from being accurate, it's really important because, and I, I've sat with, um, you know, um, young people who have been protesting and ministers and facilitated their dialogue. And, you know, what, what the young people are saying is, this is an emergency, therefore we want you to be on an emergency footing. What are you going to do? This is an emergency. And this is not how um, governments or ministers or even the climate, you know, cognoscenti have been thinking about things. And it, it's very liberating. And this sense of urgency, this liberation to really get down and tackle the problem is crucial as we are seeing the effects of climate change all around us. On the streets of Bira, the cleanup the of cyclone Edai's destruction has begun. Homes. It's a massive task. And we see extraordinary devastation, you know, just a few days ago from, from now when we're talking, of the cyclone that hit Beira and then the impact on Mozambique and Malawi, South Africa, Zimbabwe. I mean, this is, this is horrifying in its scope and its scale. And it's horrifying to see how unprepared we are and how shocked we are for something that has been entirely predictable. So we need to rebuild ourselves. 
In making this energy transition, it's vital to see things as they are and taking a holistic approach, says Rachel. There's no silver bullet for this. It's good old-fashioned policy, technology and finance, right? We have to attack all three. Um, Policy matters. Uh, the finance will flow with good policy and the technology needs to deployed, be deployed to the people who need it more quickly. But we also know how to do that. So most of this is known. We have most of the money. We have most of the technology. It's about political will. It's about prioritisation. It's about discipline. We can be. We must be. The first generation to end extreme poverty. The generation most determined to fight injustice and inequalities. The generation that saves the planet from climate change. And this is how. And in making this transition, it's essential that the principles of the UN Sustainable Development Goals are adhered to. A fair economy where no one is left behind has to be the starting point. Where no one wakes in the morning asking if there will be food today. So I think the most important point to to re- to understand or to realise is that um, the people who don't have access to reliable, affordable and clean energy today are not the problem. I mean, if we gave them um, access to energy on the energy mix that we all used to, you know, heavily fossil fuel dominated, it would only account for about 1% of global emissions. So that they are not the problem, but they are an essential part of the solution because unless we can get them clean, affordable, reliable power, they cannot um, meet their own aspirations and contribute to the economy uh, successfully. And, you know, the whole point of um, the Sustainable Development Goals, and then you read that in the context of needing to deeply decarbonise the economy, which is the Paris challenge, the whole, the whole point of this enterprise is that we can build an economy which is clean but also serves people's needs better and is more inclusive. But is it possible to get a carbon emissions in line with the Paris Climate Agreement? In other words, to get to zero carbon emissions by 2050? So I think that from an emissions perspective, there's been some really interesting work in the last year or so from the Energy Transitions Commission and others that, that show that it is technically uh, feasible to arrive at a zero net carbon sort of world, a deeply decarbonised economy by 2050 um, uh, with and uh, with decarbonising of steel and cement and um, you know, shipping and aviation and some of what have traditionally been thought of as really hard to abate sectors of the economy. And the recent work in a, in a report called Mission Possible talks about how that's technically possible and actually affordable. We're talking about 0.5% of GDP. Um, so that's something that we could actually do. A huge part of meeting the emissions goal is energy efficiency. If you attack the problem from that direction, then we have to be a lot more efficient. So energy efficiency first. of the emissions can be saved by having more circular processes. At the same time, a crucial part of the energy transition is solving the access to energy problem. There are a billion people who don't have access to energy, and introducing renewable energy solutions here needs to be a priority. When it comes to energy access, 
All the evidence is that for rural populations in, on low incomes who live beyond the power lines today, that we can use the remarkable advances in renewable energy technologies and provide them with distributed renewable energy. And for the first time, we can honestly uh, say that we could actually connect them to reliable, affordable uh, energy. Um, you're never going to run an aluminum smelter off a mini grid, but you can run health facilities. You can run uh, villages and small towns and through distributed energy, a renewable energy. And uh, this is uh, the closest thing to a low hanging fruit I think we have for the just you know the 600 million Africans who don't have access uh, to energy. You know, most of whom are living in rural areas, but. Uh, for those even living on the peri-urban areas of the growing cities of Africa, too. The earth is warming. The polar ice caps are melting. There are droughts in Africa, hurricanes and storm surges. Every day, the effects of climate change make news headlines. Businessman Paul also keeps reading about it in the newspaper. It is all quite alarming, but also very far away. Climate change has nothing to do with his company, he thinks. And what about the role of the private sector in finding solutions? What is Rachel's take on that? Well, the first thing I think is there's a critique for anybody who lives in the developed world, is which, which is that we love what the private sector provides us when it suits us, and then suddenly they're the, 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 get the bad guys when it doesn't suit us. And so they are a function of the society that we've been prepared to live in. So... Now, uh, you know, when I work with, uh, I'm in a dialogue with uh, fossil fuel companies, in particular with the oil and gas sector, which, you know, is organised around climate action. I think that the main message that I bring to them is, is, is one of coherence, right? So they uh, cannot expect to be uh, accepted as um, possible um allies in the energy transition towards a deeply decarbonized economy and a deeply decarbonized energy sector through you know commitments that they may be making on reducing methane emissions or reducing gas flaring or becoming more efficient or trying to understand energy intensity and reducing it if they are then going to spend most of their government affairs budget on lobbying against the policies that they stand in the UN and say that they want and there's been recent um, articles and research done for everybody from the Financial Times to Greenpeace to others that have shown that too many of these companies have been actively lobbying against effective prices on carbon and other policy measures while, you know, very happily standing up on stage with world leaders saying we're part of the climate solution. And the role for the IKEA Foundation, how does Rachel see that? I think it needs to bring the rest of philanthropy with it around a critical path. We could spend an awful lot of money collectively as an international community and a lot of time doing all kinds of really nice things, but will we have moved the needle? And so having a very clear-eyed view of the critical path to closing the energy access gap. And in our day-to-day life, as individuals, what has the most impact there? So I think you have to eat differently um, uh, live differently if you're in the developed world I think you have to um, uh, you know we're going to have to live in houses that are built differently we're going to have to move around differently 
We have to do all of those things, and all of those things are actually exciting, especially to young people. But the most important thing, the most important thing is that we have to vote differently. Absolutely. Our house is falling apart. The future, as well as what we have achieved in the past, is literally in your hands now. But it's still not too late to act. We're going to have to have leaders who are brave enough to trust science and technologists and others that they can see around the corners and that we can build a future which is so exciting, it's job-rich, it's clean, the air will be cleaner, uh, there will be more possibility of adapting and being resilient to the impacts we've already bought for ourselves, right? Um, and, you know, it will offer more opportunity for more people. Uh, but that's going to take um, a leap of faith and we're going to have to have a generation of leaders that are ready for that. And I think, frankly, that generation is you know, younger than me. That's Rachel Kite, CEO of Sustainable Energy for All. We thank Rachel for taking the time to share her vision with us when she came to our office recently. You've been listening to the What If podcast from the IKEA Foundation. I hope you enjoyed listening in. Let us know what you think. Maybe you want to share a comment on something you've heard in this episode. You can get in touch with us via the IKEA Foundation Facebook page. And please help spread the word about this podcast. It helps a lot. And our final what if thought for this episode before I sign off. What if time was a renewable resource? What would you do with it? Until the next time, my name is Altaf Makiawala. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.